Hey everybody, this is Charles Hain, writer for No Film School, here for the No Film School podcast on May 5th, 2021. I'm here with Editor-in-Chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Hello. This week on the podcast, we're going to be talking about the end of Arclight Cinemas and what can be done, who can come to the rescue. We are going to be talking about Pivoting Your Franchise, a creative dilemma we all hope to someday have the luxury of having. Um, cause that is like the definition of luxury problems. How do you keep your franchise alive? Uh, we are going to be talking about matching the iPhone to other cameras in tech news. And we have a question about film school scholarships. I know technically this is no film school, but it was a question on the no film school boards. And I have a lot of thoughts on film school scholarships that I want to share. So all that this week on the no film school podcast. All right, up first this week, we're going to be talking about a very Los Angeles-specific subject, which is the Arclight theater chain. I know there's some Arclights in other cities. I think of Arclight as as the sort of defining movie theater of modern Los Angeles. You know, there's a bunch of beautiful uh, movie theaters in LA, like the Egyptian and the Arrow that are sort of like of a time. But Arclight is of like the modern time. Like it opened after I moved to LA. Uh, I mean... George has always lived in LA, but it like opened as George was an adult. It was a movie theater chain where I saw so many movies over the years. And what is interesting is that it just recently announced that it is closing. And what's particularly interesting about it, I mean, first off, the, the reason we're talking about it this week is because it's just been announced that their Santa Monica location is already getting evicted by their landlord, which is like particularly depressing. But it's also sort of an interesting conundrum that a lot of people are wondering about because at the same time, we have an article right up on No Film School right now about uh, Alamo's reopening dates. So Alamo, another theater chain of the modern era, Alamo, you know, was started, I think, late 90s in Austin. Little known fact, before they were in Austin, they had a movie theater in Bakersfield, one of my favorite cities. And then they moved to Austin and started the Alamo Draft House chain. Alamo has survived. Alamo is reopening locations. Alamo is reopening. Um, I think in two weeks, I'll be able to go to an Alamo in Brooklyn and watch a movie, which I, you know, hope to be able to do again someday. Although I was looking at what was showing and nothing was particularly exciting, but you know, maybe by the summer, good movies will be back in theaters. Regardless, it's, <laughs> it's pretty deep into the pandemic for the Arclight to close. It seems like they would have had ample time to find a savior they would have had ample time to tap government resources, which were available. And so, you know, a lot of people are bummed. I think everybody is sitting around hoping right now that there will be a hero. I mean, if you're an Angelino moviegoer, and if you're not an Angelino moviegoer, but you're a movie fan, which is why you're listening to this podcast and you're someday in Los Angeles, you owe it to yourself to go to the New Beverly Theater. Um, I spent so many weekends and weeknights of my life there, you know, seeing double features of The Conformist and Last Tango in Paris and like amazing other double features. Uh, Great, great theater. Tarantino came in and saved it. They had some money troubles 20 years ago. Tarantino bought it. It is now Tarantino's theater. He makes a joke about it. They're reopening soon. They have announced. That is so great. And he makes a joke about the theater in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where they're going to the El Coyote Mexican restaurant, and they're making a joke about the adult theater down the street having a premiere. That's the adult theater Tarantino owns. So... Um, although it's no longer an adult theater, although it's mostly for adults, it's just not sexually. <laughs> so, I mean, maybe they do double features of kids movies on the weekends. I don't know that I haven't seen their latest calendar regardless point remains. I think everybody's sitting around hoping that a savior will come for Arclight. If you don't know Arclight, 
their sort of original location. They took over the area around something called the Cinerama Dome. The Cinerama Dome was originally designed in the 60s and is a giant dome space space for showing Cinerama movies that are three cameras. Uh, there, there weren't many Cinerama movies made, although one feature that was made in Cinerama was How the West Was Won, and they would show it about once a year. And seeing a full Cinerama movie like How the West Was Won in the Cinerama Dome is a magical experience. Uh, little known fact uh, or nerd fact about the Cinerama Dome because the screen is curved, the black level is different. So you actually have to master the movie differently. And you could always tell how nerdy a filmmaker was as to whether or not it was clear they made a specific Cinerama print or Cin- Cinerama digital master. Like I remember seeing Avatar there and it looked perfect. And I was like, you know what? I'd, I'd be willing to bet good money James Cameron made a specific master for the Cinerama I Dome. I know that. Um, yeah, because it, it so basically it's curved, so the light of the screen reflects in on itself, so the shadows tend to get washed. So a lot of times you'll watch a normal movie in the dome, and the shadows will look a lot washier and weaker than they would um, normally. But there are like four or five movies in my history in Holly in LA, seeing a lot of movies in the dome that looked right in the dome. One of them was How the West Was Won, but um, one of them was Cameron's Avatar, and there were a couple of others. And I would bet such good money that James Cameron made a specific version just for the dome, because doesn't that seem like something James Cameron would do? Um, of course, yeah, yeah. You know, I we we wrote about ArcLight and Pacific closing on No Film School back on April thirteenth. The new story is just that the ArcLight in Santa Monica owes back rent, and you know they're being evicted, and it's. Just more sad and ugliness. And if you've if you've lived in LA, the arc lights, like Charles said, are some of those the nice theaters. They're the good theaters. They upgraded the whole experience, and everything about them uh, is great. And it's a shame. Um, the dome is a magical space unto itself. How the seeing something like how the West was won in the dome is really fun. That is just such a weird, unique movie experience. I would not recommend watching that movie any other way. Because it's like, I'm, it's I'm, not a great I'm movie, being, right? <laughs> and I'm being hyperbolic here. It's not a great movie in the traditional sense of what a movie is. It's like eight hours long. It follows a family and uh, across generations. Is it's sort of almost borderline experimental because it stitches together. Well, it stitches together the shots, but it also stitches together different directors using different stars for different sections of the story with like a through line. So it's sort of a fascinating, weird puzzle. Like, for example, there's a Civil War section that John Ford directed with John Wayne, but there's like all these different sections. There's a Jimmy Stewart section There's a with different directors from the era. And that was just something they were experimenting with in Hollywood at the time, mainly to compete with television, which had emerged not long prior. And it was like, how do we make the theater so special? Like, what can we do that only the theater can do? Anyway, uh, you know, saw Lawrence of Arabia there, all those kinds of things. Lawrence in the Dome is magical. Yeah, support your local theaters and support once you can and support the ones that play old movies if you can. Yeah, I guess this is just, you know, another one of those things that that's happening and is a shame. But luckily, New Beverly is coming back. And... They will play a lot of Quentin Tarantino movies, but hopefully some other stuff too occasionally. If you're listening, Quentin, it's nice when you mix other people's movies in. Look, I mean, we know Quentin Tarantino is a longtime fan of the podcast, so I'm just going to lay this out here. Quentin Tarantino, just buy Arclight. Like, <laughs> like it, it, it is an important part 
of the L.A. cinematic experience. I mean, the same way that the 1950s anamorphic and Cinerama was about reacting to television, I feel like the Arclight was about reacting to the internet and streaming media and the yeah. ability to assign yourself a seat and have an adult beverage and and uh, get better snacks. And, and all of that stuff was a reaction to a changing society. And, like, we're still – we still want this big, beautiful cinema. And we all know, Quentin Tarantino, that the new Beverly is not enough screen for you in – uh, New York. I mean, in LA, I mean, famously, uh, you went to, uh, I believe it was every opening week screening of inglorious bastards. I know at least two people who were in an opening week screening that you attended where you went to the front of the theater for inglorious bastards and got the whole theater chanting. We're going to kill some Nazis. We're going (laughs) to kill some Nazis. And how are you going to do that? If you don't have an arc light to do that in, so yeah. I think if anyone needs to swoop in, I mean, look, I'll accept anybody like Nolan is fine. Uh, although I, I wonder who has more money, Nolan or Tarantino Spielberg billions. Great. Lucas billions. Great. Although Lucas is a NorCal guy, but like one of, one of you have a little faith in the future of watching movies in the theater in LA and put it down. Cause you know, you know, it's going to survive. Maybe it won't be profitable for you. But you're not going to lose money on it. I like the I like your impassioned plea to filmmakers to buy chains. I think that it's a good one because it's sort of rem- like I don't if you're one of if you're at a certain level of rich, it's almost like like Lucas, for example. If you're listening, George, you could probably take a loss on the theater chain because you're doing well in other places. I assume, like maybe like a sports owner is. So I don't know. I mean. You know, I'm not going to tell you how to manage your finances, but think about how fun it would be. You could show whatever version of Star Wars you want on May the 4th every year. I am I like that's why this story I think is worth covering in the podcast this week is honestly when it came up April 13th, I was like, there's no way one of the rich fucks in the industry won't save it because L.A. is the city and there are people in the industry who could. And if you're rich, you know, the stock market was on fire in 2020. You you probably if you were worth a hundred million dollars and you did nothing in twenty twenty, you're probably worth a hundred and ninety-eight million dollars now. Because once you're rich enough, you keep most of it in the market because there's very few other places to keep it, except real estate, which also went crazy in twenty twenty. Um, so use some of that twenty twenty pandemic money, David Geffen, to keep Arclight alive because it's important. I think Arclight is important. I think Arc Arclight I have almost never been back to LA without a trip to Arclight since I left LA. And maybe Bezos will do it. Maybe uh maybe Facebook will do it. I don't know. I'm I'm fine with anybody, but I think there's I think it's a good idea for someone who's extremely rich to to decide. To I'm fine with anybody out. but Facebook. I want the ability to have a conversation <laughs> about a movie in Arclight without a microphone hearing it and then serving me ads about it. Like, I don't want to come home from the movie and see ads for Junior Mints. Also, and I realize Instagram and Facebook are the same company, but Facebook's ad algorithm is badly broken. I don't care about Marvel movies. I don't think they're awful. I enjoyed Iron Man. But, like, I'm not the target market. I see, like, 50 ads for um, Marvel movies every time I'm on Facebook. I don't know why middle-aged white dude has been profiled this way, but, like, I've never bought a Marvel movie ticket online. When I saw Iron Man, I paid. Hmm. Like, I don't understand. And so it might like, be just because you like movie stuff. And and they have no other movie stuff to market at me. So like I don't you know, know. Once liking an Orson Welles fan page on Facebook means you're forever gonna get stocked with Marvel ads. Interesting. 
Zuck, could you write in and let us know? Because I know he listens too. Yes, I also am aware that Zuck is a big listener. All right, moving on to our next story. My favorite modern franchise, the Fast and the Furious franchise, uh, Fast 9 is on its way. It's F9, the Fast Saga is actually its official name, which like, you know. I I did not know this was your favorite modern franchise. What's in the running for modern franchise in your mind? Before we dive further, I'm curious what the other like. It is definitely the the modern franchise, right? Of the era, it is the franchise of the era. Well, I guess the Avengers. Actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna go out on a limb. I'm gonna say this is my favorite franchise running. So, including franchises that started before now, I like this franchise more. Like, well, you are not alone. There's a lot yeah, of people. It's who feel like the best. It is phenomenal. Four, uh, four, five, and six are just like. Perfect. Seven, eight, complicated feelings. Um, but even two, which is like notoriously the weakest, deserves so many points for the title Too Fast. Is two too Tokyo furious. Drift? Oh, okay. Uh, no, yeah. three is Tokyo Drift. Two is Too Fast, Too Furious. Yeah. Was that the beginning of titles like that? I feel like it was that was kind of the 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 origin of titles that were using the number that way. Which um, is now th- kind of a joke. Did did the movie didn't the movie seven yeah, the movie oh, seven yeah, in yeah, 1995. Yeah. But, but it wasn't the seventh. Yeah, <laughs> it wasn't the seventh in a franchise. But yes, I know. But that made it even more awesome and fun that they were like, yeah. So I think seven is the one that I always think of as really kicking that off. You know, Jason Hellerman had a great article up this week that we just sort of wanted to dive into a little bit of one of the interesting things about the Fast franchise, and one of the things that has given it the legs it's had is that it has given itself the ability to pivot. Look, I mean, very few of us are going to be in a situation where we're three or four movies into a franchise and are debating the dilemma of how to keep it fresh and alive. But we are all going to have varieties of situations in our lives where we are a couple of projects into something and we have to find ways to keep ourselves creative and keep moving forward. And so while I don't think that, you know, the the lessons of how to keep your franchise alive I think are very limited, but I think the lessons of how to keep your creativity alive, how to keep yourself interested in your own work um, are really richly played out in the Fast franchise. I mean, they, first off, they set themselves up with a challenge by going for a weird title the second time, which means every time after that, they also have to have a crazy title, which is just exhausting. I can't even imagine how they keep doing it. But <laughs> beyond that, it, it it started as a street racing crime movie. Like literally, and the movie happened so long ago, the TVs they were stealing had built-in VHS players. They were combination CRT TVs, VHS players. That was the contraband they were stealing in the first Fast and the Furious movie. And now, the you know, the franchise is older than probably most of its fans who are largely in high school. And it pivoted. They made the decision, which I think was really smart partway through of saying, okay, we've probably taken street racing as far as we can take these characters. And they pivoted it to a spy franchise. I mean, more or less, it is effectively the American version of James Bond. And it did that by letting it evolve and grow. I will say that once the Knives Out franchise blossoms into being a full franchise, that might be some competition for the Fast franchise. (laughs) But that's still younger. And that was always, it was always obvious what, what I love about the Fast and the Furious is Knives Out was clearly intended to be a franchise. You watched it and you're like, 
oh, this is he's trying to make an American Poirot with like this ridiculous corn, uh, like foghorn leghorn accent. Like he's trying to build a mystery franchise. If this movie does well, we'll get we'll get a bunch of these and it'll be great. The Fast and the Furious had no intention of being a franchise. It really just intended to be Point Break for street racing. That was it. It was like, take Point Break, put it in fast cars instead of fast waves, go. And yet it was good enough and popular enough and fun enough that it launched an entire thing because of its greatness. Yeah, you know, I can't speak to its longevity or success because I haven't really watched them. I watched... So when the first one came out all those years ago, I thought it was like over the top absurd and went thinking it would be funny bad. And it wasn't, but I also didn't love it. I know I'm a huge outlier in this. And I was like, okay, yeah, well, I regret going thinking that I was going to be laughing at it because it wasn't like funny bad. It was just like, okay, it was a racing movie. And I never really went, you know, I might have actually seen Tokyo Drift now that I think about it. I don't know why. But either way, I just kind of tuned out. And everybody I know of every walk of life with all taste has told me just what you said. Like, they get better. They're amazing. You know, the, the, this one is great. The sixth one, or, you know, and then the emotions of, the, of, of losing Paul Walker and how they handled that and all of it. Like, it... It seems like they've done something majestic in that they've been middle of the road, no pun intended, mainstream action fair while also being emotionally available to audiences and presenting emotional characters. And I think that's an amazing needle they've threaded and it's original property they came up with and it continues to pivot and all that is you know, very impressive. It's shifted directors, it's shifted, uh, it's shifted focus. It's kind of a model franchise, I guess, in the modern, like, what do you need a franchise to do is to like, instead of doing a thing so many franchises have done, like, they'll, they don't go back, right? There are no prequels where they're like, hey, let's mine our backstory. They're always like, no, what's the next thing? How do we turn this again and change it and do a new thing? And now they're going into space, right? Which is absurd, but they seem to somehow keep pulling this off. A combination of earnestness and joy, I think, is what it seems like. Like they make things that are ridiculous, but still enjoyable, and they take it seriously. They commit to the bit, they lean in, and it works, I guess, for everyone, it seems like, uh, except for me, but more just because I haven't been going. So, but I, I mean, respect the game, you know. Just like personally, I'm I'm just not a big car movie guy. I like I love cars in real life. I just never been a racing movie enthusiast. But either way, that that's really neither here nor there. Like the impressiveness is what studio the studio and the collection of artists have done year after year, you know, like and I think I wonder why more franchises. This is what I like I look at the Star Warses, although Star Wars is starting to get a little more marvelly. But, you know, Star Trek is a good example. That's a franchise I've been a fan of in the past. And they keep doing things like they keep mining the past or relitigating the past. Like, And I don't watch any of their new stuff, but I'm like not interested in it because why not take it forward? That's what I think is so impressive about what the Fast franchise does. They keep going forward and they keep succeeding. They're not looking back and saying like, well, what if we talked about how Vin Diesel grew up? Like what made Vin Diesel? You know, what is that obsession with prequels and backstory? Like backstory is better left on, it's better left as backstory. 
right? It's like that. That's it's. It's not supposed to be examined that closely. Maybe it was Star Wars that broke that. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, no, that is a really good. That is a very accurate rant. I think that it's also really the the other thing that you've got to first off, you have to go watch Fast Five right away. Like, come on, just go watch Fast Five right now. <laughs> okay. um, be real. But secondly, um, one of the things that the Fast and the Furious franchise does really well and does it without seeming to get any internet blowback from it is like it's just incredibly naturally multicultural in a way that never feels forced. Like it has always had a wide palette of humanity and it doesn't seem to get accusations. You know, like if the Star Wars universe casts a non-white person, internet trolls seem to come for it with arrows and uh, for whatever reason, the internet just seems to have accepted fast five for what it is. And I think it's to the credit of the creators in the fast franchise universe that every, everybody has always felt. I mean, I think the star Wars creators actually also do a great job. And Diego Luna is really amazing in um, rogue one. And like, I'm not, I'm not blaming the creators in the star Wars blowback on the internet. I'm blaming the fans in the internet blowback there. Cause I feel like those people are being racist yes. fans. I think the creators are doing great in the star Wars franchise, but like, the fandom in the Fast Five saga has always been very accepting of a very inclusive audience, which has grown more inclusive over time and more diverse, but in a way that the fandom has embraced. Yeah. And I think that's a really magical thing. I also think that early on, you know, Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift was a whole new slate of characters. It was literally like none of the main characters were in it. It was new Isn't people. Isn't it like uh, the, wire, the Wire season... Which one is the season on the docks? Two. It like starts like over. Really well, no, but like McNulty is. It's polarizing. McNutty is. Yeah, I love, he is still there. Yeah. yeah. Whereas literally, it's in Tokyo. Like there's. Yeah. Like yeah. those characters later get brought back into the wider world, and Han Solo, yes. which is such a great character name, remains. But it is not all tied together. Yeah. Well, I just more on that. I actually think worth adding in that. It's a modern franchise in that sense. I think that, look, I'm not here to defend toxic fandom. I hate it. And I think it's absurd. And I think people complaining about who gets cast as in a Ghostbuster movie or who's the star of a Star Wars movie is just I absolutely find something better to do with yourselves. But I think that the Fast movies established a diverse cast, a universe like that. And I suspect that just like what always happens with conservative mentality or regress sometimes what it's like regressive like uh we don't want it to change mentality is that it's well but star wars that i know is like this the star wars from 1977 through 1983 is like this and i don't want to see a star wars that's like that but see the thing about fast five is they established uh, fast five the thing about fast and the furious is they established a look that incorporated different kinds of people coming together, forming a family high role. But they did that in a way that that was that they've continued and branched out. And that's the that's in the DNA. And so I think the problem with Star Wars, again, is that the fans are like, but I want it to be the way Star Wars used to be. And that and I do that in a whiny voice because I find it whiny because it's like, well, you know, no one's taking away your old Star Wars, but people are just kind of trying to find ways to tack and update, which is always good. So I, I do think part of the part of it just becomes like thing people get stuck on the way things were the first time. And that's why it's good to approach all these things as we start them now with these kind of diverse, progressive 
approaches because then that becomes baked into the DNA. And then as you continue to do that, people will be like, oh my God, you're betraying my my trust of what you were, which was an all white male cast. <laughs> like that, that was what I thought I was signing up for. Moving on to tech news. So if you don't know Film Convert, Film Convert is a software plugin and standalone app. And uh, it, you know, when when they named themselves Film Convert, it was very focused on converting your video image to look like film, which is something that, man, my students used to ask me all the time. And now my students don't ask me as much because I feel like the cultural memory around wanting something to look like film has changed. And we want things to look nice. We want things to look good, but it doesn't necessarily have to align itself with a specific technology to do that. I think that attachment's sort of changing. But their their name is still Film Convert. They're very nice. We interview them at NAB most years, and, and they're super nice people. And they have just released their new camera pack for the iPhone 12 Pro. And they've uh, released some really stunning results with their new Cinematch software to make the iPhone... 12 match the airy alexa and they've got like some really stunning side by sides out where like the greens get really close the pinks don't get quite as close the iphone 12 looks a little more uh blue in the pinks a little purpler in the pinks than, but like certainly something you could intercut certainly something where you could cut these two together so why did we want to talk about this in tech news well the the big reason i wanted to talk about this in tech news is that every time one of these comes out one of my students or somebody emails me and they're like, well, then why are we still shooting on the Alexa? If I can make an iPhone look exactly like the Alexa. And the point of these tools in my mind is not to remove the function of like a full size, a camera because an, a camera, like a big area, Alexa or black magic 12 K or anything like that gives you so much more than just your image. It gives you flexibility. You can put a wide variety of different lenses on it. You can integrate better with sound. You can integrate better with follow focus controls. You have all of these powers and you have amazing latitude. So usually you see the best results with these like matching techniques in limited settings. Like even the side-by-side I'm looking at right in front of me from Film Convert, it's an indoor scene. It's not outside in a desert where you've got highlights that are like 15 stops brighter than the shadows under a rock. It's like an indoor scene. It's some plants against a wall. It's a nice scene. But it's a very controlled lighting scene where there's not a wide range of brightnesses in front of the lens that you're trying to match. And so the fact that the two sensors are very different, you can still get them somewhat close. Whereas I think if you try and go out with an iPhone and shoot like a day exterior at the beach, you might find that you're not getting the same latitude and highlight roll off that you might get at Alexa and it's going to be harder to match. Where these things become really useful is... You know, famously, there is a shot in The Wolf of Wall Street shot on an iPhone. It's when Jordan Belfort is strapped into a seatbelt into first class, and there's a shot of the fastened seatbelt sign. And literally, they did that shot of the fastened seatbelt sign. The visual effects supervisor was flying from London, New York, or New York to London, and just shot that on the iPhone and intended to, like, cut it in as, like, a temp thing. And then they cut it in, and it matched well enough that they just kept it, and it saved them having to go out and shoot that another way which is great. So like that kind of stuff is what this is really for in my mind is like, I'm out with the iPhone and I'm, you know, like for instance, I just did a thing uh, that was like a little TV type thing with two locations. And uh, the exec producer was like, I want to link the two locations with like a long tracking shot between the two, which is the kind of thing that like, you know, 
it's hard to fit into a production day. It's so easy to just go back alone later. I actually did it with a DJI Osmo Pocket, but like it's the same kind of thing where you could easily do with like your iPhone 12. You hop on your bicycle, you ride between these two locations, you speed it up in post, like super easy and way easier to do that on an iPhone than an Alexa. So these kind of camera match tools are in my mind more for that when you're like, oh, I'm going to get these little extra shots that it's just quick and dirty to get with my iPhone. Whenever I've worked on productions that try and do anything really elaborate with your phone, you end up being really frustrated because like audio sync is is annoying or like controlling focus is hard or lens swaps or like they're not really designed to be an A camera, but they have amazing little sensors in them and fun little lenses and you can do fun stuff. So you should do fun stuff. What To what extent do you think they can be a B camera? I don't know. I'm trying to create, I'm thinking of a scenario that's a little more indie cuts a little closer to the bone in terms of budget and that maybe you have a nice A camera, but you don't have any B camera, but you do have iPhones galore. And you are thinking about like, you know, various shots where you're, or maybe it's takes where you're like, it would be great to just grab some coverage to keep myself safe. What if you ran it as a B camera for like your whole shoot, just as like pickups and stuff? Cause you were on a shoestring. Would it work? Would it become a problem? You could run it as your B camera for your whole shoot. That's doable. That's certainly like an achievable thing. And like keep cutting in like a close up that you got on the iPhone or like an over the shoulder. Like, could you do, do you, how, do you think a shot reverse shot would cut? I would not do a shot reverse shot. Shot reverse shot is exactly where it would fall apart. And the reason why shot reverse shot is exactly where it would fall apart is because you're going to end up with um, wildly different depths of field between the tiny, tiny sensor Got it. And the big sensor. And that's where it's going to fall apart. So that is like the perfect example of like, you can use it for so many things, but the one thing you can't use it for is this, which is over the shoulder shots or coverage shots. Like I really think of the iPhone as like an amazing, like, oh, I need a super wide shot from a weird angle or I need a super close insert. Like I'm going to be able to get it with those cameras because then if the depth of field is wildly different, you don't really notice. Whereas. So if you ran around and got your inserts after, before you wrapped, you were like, we're wrapping this location. Let's just grab close-ups of little things or hands grabbing things or whatever we need. You think they would all cut in fine. Remove hands from that equation. Cause <laughs> I would say like, if you want to, like, if you're like, okay, I did this scene and now I just want to grab some inserts of like smoke coming up off this little coffee cup or like stirring the little stir and right. like that yeah, kind of inserty yeah. stuff. You could grab some of that on a phone and it might be able to cut. All right. And our last question this week, uh, Rujanth Sean asks, are there any scholarships for international students in film schools? This is a great question. I have lots of thoughts about it. And this is one that comes up a lot in my life from international students and not as much from domestic students. And I think one of the reasons why is first off, higher education is much more expensive in America than it is in a lot of other countries. So I think people like are excited about going to a school like NYU or USC or Fierstein where I teach or UCLA. And because of that, they get really excited about coming to America to go to film school, but discover it's super expensive. So they go looking for scholarships. I also think scholarships might be different internationally than they are domestically. And and then again, in America, I think a lot of people have like guidance counselors or whatever, but mostly in my experience, and hit me up on Twitter if I'm wrong, most scholarships are tied to the school you go to. I remember when I was in high school, I got this big list of all the scholarships I could apply to. And like, a lot of them were like crazy right wing, like write this article about why Ayn Rand has affected your life for the better. Um, that one still sticks out in my mind 20 years later, the uh, 
the weird objectivist one, but like most of them weren't really like, it was like get $500 for college from this essay contest, but there weren't like robust, actually big scholarships that weren't tied to schools. Everybody I know that like got a full ride to college. It was a scholarship that was offered by their specific college. Um, There are exceptions out there. Of course, there's like, you know, your local rotary club or whatever, but for the most part, those are small and the big scholarships you get are offered to you by the institution you apply to. So the way it usually works in North America is you apply to an institution and then those institutions will have scholarships within it that they can then offer you to help convince you to go to their particular institution. So if you, um, so I would focus on applying to institutions and seeing what scholarship offers are available to you from the institutions you apply to. And usually you'll have some sort of like admissions officer or whatever that you'll be emailing with. And you can certainly ask them. There's no shame in saying like, oh, I'm very interested. You know, I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to pay for this. I'm very interested in information about scholarships. Like that's a very fair thing to ask. Different schools are going to have different scholarship uh, funds available to them that they can award. But also know that almost all North American graduate education, if you end up going to grad school, part of the idea is that you're going to pay for it by working on campus, like being a TA, which is a teacher's assistant, which means you're teaching undergrad class which is good because then you're getting paid, but you're also learning to teach, which is something a lot of people do after grad school. So there are, there are a variety of those. I wish I, I wish that there were more scholarship funds independent of schools, but also, frankly, I feel like higher education should just be free like public school. Like I feel like a public college should be free the way high school is free. So, um, you know, we need to redo the way we fund higher education in North America. But um, I think because uh, you're asking that, that question that to, on No Film School, which is based in North America, I think you're asking about North America. Do you have anything else to in, uh, add insight there, George? Um, I don't have any experience uh, looking for scholarships for film schools. And I don't have, unlike you, I'm not around students and colleges. I'm not in that world. So I'm unfamiliar with the process. So all I can really add to it is that I think that it's a very especially right now. Here's here's my observation these days. Taking on debt for school is really tricky. Uh, especially, I don't like to be a Debbie Downer, but especially if it's the film school world, because that's always been a tough proposition in terms of earning. Even law students right now are, are kind of screwed when they come out because they have massive debt. And they're more likely to be guaranteed money and they're screwed. So I'm only bringing this up because I think, I guess my answer sort of roundabout, the only thing I can really add is that I think if you're not getting a scholarship to film school, you should really, really consider carefully the potential financial situation. Unfortunately, in this country, people coming out of school right now are faced with like some of the worst numbers, job markets, opportunities, like the gen- current generation coming out of school. I mean, you can speak to all of this better than I can, much better than I can, but just w- the data I see and what I know about the industry, like it's a very difficult, like I just think entering it in debt is like a, just a really bad idea. So whenever I think about film school, I think scholarship is probably the only way I would really consider it right now. I would be very careful. Well, now look, full disclosure, I work at a film school, so, and I know many of my students take out loans, so that is part of it. 
So I'm I'm going to counter argue, and I'm going to say this: there are public schools. Yeah, in, I mean it makes sense. You <laughs> there are public schools and private schools. Yes. Uh, on average, public schools cost about a third of private schools. It is more for international students. I am aware that is a thing. There, that is a that is a thing that it costs more for international students. But public schools, among them, Fierstein Graduate School of Cinema, where I work, part of Brooklyn College, UCLA in LA, San Francisco State, Florida State in Florida, where um, Barry directed Moonlight. Barry, oh, why do I remember his first name? Not his last name. Anyway, um, Florida State, which has turned out many great filmmakers, and these public schools, Florida State especially, um, is funded by lottery funds. But all of these public schools will cost about a third of the p- private schools. So if you're looking at NYU, Columbia, and USC, and I went to USC, I'm not trash talking USC, but if you're looking at them and you're like, "Whoa, I'm going to walk out with 150, 170 thousand dollars in debt," know that you should look at the publics as well: UCLA, Brooklyn College, Fierstein, uh, Florida State, San Francisco State. These are great programs that cost about a third. And then the flip side, I will also say is. I think it's a safer bet to go to film school now than to go to law school if you are comfortable with the idea that you may not be a studio director in the end, right? Like there are more U.S. senators than there are people directing studio movies. So if you accept that that might not be your path, but you're happy with the idea that you're going to direct music videos or commercials or creative content, or you might end up editing or you might end up in cinematography, like there are... there is so much work in media and entertainment right now that I feel like it's not as, I don't know how I would feel like, who knows, maybe someday I'll teach at a private film school and I'll I'll have to think about this, but right now teaching at a public film school, I feel like it is a reasonable investment for a career just based on the fact that all of my students are so busy working all like I keep trying to get alumni back to teach and I keep hearing from them that they are too busy to teach. Um, And sometimes it's that they're, too busy to even come in and talk sometimes. I'll tack my argument. I'll, I'll go the other direction and add to what you're saying. There is definitely, there's a lot of opportunities to be employed in this industry as it expands outward. There's so many places where you can find gainful employment that aren't the ways you think when you maybe are applying to film school. So I would just say, think about thinking about that or learning the actual trades and not thinking I'm going to be you know, paid to write screenplays or direct the movies that I come up with. I think that there's a big distinction there. So that's sort of what I would say is like, be realistic about like how you're going to pay the bills and if you have loans and if they are high and all of those things, like just kind of be thoughtful and strategic about it would be my advice. Um, but I know a lot of people who make a lot of money in the industry and make living. So it's definitely possible. It's just in general, I think that it's the numbers are, are rough on people coming out of school right now looking for employment, but it sounds like graduates of Fierstein are doing pretty well. And that's great. I, I just think uh, obviously the private institutions are going to be a lot more. That's that's really good insight. I think pursuing scholarships makes a lot of sense though. And I wish more film, I think it would be great if more film programs offered more because it would help us diversify the types of talent that comes through the pipeline, because traditionally you you kind of have to be in a position where you can lose some money or not make some money for a while to get started. So that also is tough. You know, a lot of the advice is like, take free jobs for a while. I've given that advice before. It's not really advice people can follow Oh yeah, <laughs> in a lot of situations. So there's a lot of considerations, yeah. and, you know. No, I always tell the story. My buddy's first... Um, internship after grad school, the, the, his like supervisor at a full-time job was like, so do you like need money or not? 
which is like an insane question. It's like, everybody needs money. We need to eat and have rent. But like in the industry, there's a lot of interns who just don't like their parents will pay for their life until they're 30. So they have a decade of like interning and building relationships and everything, working for free to like build the connections to make a career, which is systemically unfair and something we need to address. All right. So a lot there. I wish I had a better answer for you about international scholarships, but uh, look at some of those public schools if you're concerned and see London Film School in uh, England also is rising, is also very prominent. Michael Mann went there and a bunch of other people. All right. So uh, I'm Charles Hain. You can find me on the internet at charleshain.com and Instagram and Twitter at Charles Hain. I'm George Edelman, editor-in-chief at No Film School. You can find these stories and more on nofilmschool.com. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast, share it with your friends. Check out our gear guides. Go down to the bottom of the homepage on No Film School. You'll see in the footer there, gear guides. Check it out. If you're looking to buy anything or just kind of take stock of what's available, we break down all kinds of gear by category, by use case, by need. We make recommendations. We have links to buy everything you need if you're looking for gear. Thanks so much. 